The history of our region, the Great Lakes, is loaded with colonial history. Here in the States, we tend to think of that as British colonial history. But if you look, you can find loads of French influence in and around Detroit, right down to the city's name. Detroit. A new novel from the Montreal writer Catherine Leroux imagines Detroit's history. What if the French had never ceded this place to the British in 1760? What if indigenous First Nations people had played an even larger military role in the conflict that set Detroit on its path? It could have very well stayed French. It's, it's a matter of like a few details in a treaty negotiation in the end. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. LaRue invites us to Fort Détroit in her new book, The Future, which is getting much attention on her side of the Detroit River. Catherine LaRue, welcome to Stateside, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. So in the book, Fort Détroit is the second biggest Francophone community in North America in this speculative future that you have imagined. How did you start thinking about what Detroit might be like if it had remained under French control? Yeah, I took a strange detour to get there because initially I wanted to write about Detroit itself. I did have a slight discomfort writing about a city that is not my own and I'd never lived there, but I hadn't decided what to do about this discomfort yet. The issue, though, for me was the kind of dialogue, the language that I would use for dialogue, because it's strange writing in French, which is, you know, the original language of this book, writing in French for characters that are technically English speakers. And I've done it before in other novels, and it means that the language, the dialogue has to be kind of flat because there's no there's no sense in giving it any sort of local color because it's a type of like translation within the book. And as I started reading about Detroit's history, I thought, well, wait a minute. This might have been a French town. It was a French town at, at its beginnings when it was when the first settlers came. So that's where the idea came from. Initially, it was because I wanted to be able to write dialogue in French, a type of French that was colorful and that felt very alive, like everyday slang can be. You did originally write the book in Quebecois, the French that is spoken in Quebec. Yes. You came up with a dialect for the residents of Fort Detroit. Is it possible for you to tell us in English what it's like, maybe how it's different than the French that's spoken in Montreal today? Yes. The French that's spoken in North America is as different from European French than British English is to American English. And within the country, there's different pockets of French speakers, and they all speak a different kind of French. So I figured, well, if Detroit was still Francophone, they would have their own brand of French in the same way that in the Windsor area, there's still pockets of French. And that French sounds very different. So I drew inspiration from Ontario French. And then I figured, well, if Detroit was still Francophone, it would still be surrounded by a lot of English. So I, I created a lot of Anglicism and a lot of transpositions of English expressions into French, which I think always sounds really lovely and fun and very whimsical almost. And I used a lot of very old French because that's a specificity of a lot of different French dialects in North America. Like it retained some words or expressions 
that are from before the French Revolution, you know? So I went into a lot of archaic expressions. This story is about a woman named Gloria who comes to Fort d'Etois. She's become estranged from her adult daughter who was murdered. And Gloria is now searching for her granddaughters, Cassandra and Matilda, who are just children. I wondered if you might read to us a little bit from the book. Would you like to set up a scene for us? Yes. So Gloria, through her search for her granddaughters, starts hearing rumors about a group of children living completely separately from the world of adults in the woods of the Rouge Park. And she decides to go and look for her granddaughters there. And this is when she's about to start this expedition. And she's with her neighbor, Eunice. Her backpack is full to bursting. Besides a flashlight and a first aid kit, Gloria has stuffed in biscuits, jams, and a thermos full of tea. Eunice insisted on accompanying her to the edge of the Rouge's woods, uttering endless words of caution. The park, she insists, is a haunt for maniacs of all sorts. Its hollows are full of poison ivy and the river of murder victims. The coyotes, actually coy wolves, are masters over it all. Plus, dusk is falling. Soon, there'll be no seeing a thing. But Gloria doesn't back down. There's no better time to make her move. The two women head along Avenue Fieldvale, which leads into the park. Clearings gives way to wooded areas and to patches of forests where branches and trunks form a complicated tangle of sinuous lines, like the mesh of netting. Through the dense foliage, the light takes on underwater tones. The trees and tall grasses swish and toss in the evening air. Shadows quiver, always hidden, always behind something else. Gloria and Eunice reach the river, a twisted arm screened by lush vegetation. Its lapping can be heard, the thread of its thoughts unknown. Something echoes overhead, like a great opening rocking the dome of the sky. Gloria stops. Eunice holds out her right hand. Gloria squeezes it. Her friend tries to slide a cold object into her grip. A gun. Gloria pushes the pistol away. Just as she knows she has to look for her granddaughters here, this evening, she also intuits it is better to approach without a weapon, with open palm. Just as she's about to set out, a sturdy body emerges from the bushes. Resolute, the one-eared pit bull, has come to join her. Eunice looks at the dog, then stares at Gloria. Without fear, Gloria caresses its head. Then, to the accompaniment of the river's stifled laughter, she plunges into the woods, the animal at her heels. A giant compass clasps them in its deliberate embrace, in its invisible certainties. We need to take a break. Back in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College. 
offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Catherine, in the book, you imagine Fort Detroit having had many of the same histories that our Detroit has. It's had its industrial age. You also imagine it having experienced the Great Migration in very similar ways. I get the sense that it's still very much a black city in the way that our Detroit is. Yes. And there are hints that the uprising of the 60s happened and many other things that people will recognize. What then changes when we imagine our Detroit as Fort Detroit? Uh, aside from the language, there are monuments that I made up. There is a very famous tower called La Tour du Lys that Cadillac supposedly built in his own honor. I thought Cadillac was such a, a fascinating character. He's kind of a con man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. And the tower keeps either collapsing or being destroyed. And then somehow it springs back up. There's a lot of fires, but not for the same reasons. What's different is I think I took the devastation a lot further. <laughs> You know, aside from the historical elements that I changed in terms of like making the tipping point different to start off this alternate history, I made the Treaty of Paris slightly different. Yeah, I think there's a lot of supernatural elements. I think the city is slightly more empty than the real Detroit. Like I went to Detroit a few times to research and to visit and I noticed that it's changing and it's being revitalized. And my own Detroit, that's not happening. It's being revitalized just by virtue of the togetherness and the communities that are rebuilding their own neighborhoods. But there's no new money being injected in the city. And it feels like the main reason for this has to do with uh, an unspoken environmental disaster that's engulfed the planet. Why did you decide to make that a facet of the story? Because I think that's where we're headed. What's interesting to me is that when I started writing and thinking about the book, it still felt a little more theoretical. Like we knew that there was going to be a lot of, you know, disasters and and issues due to climate change, but it didn't feel that real, at least not in North America. And as I wrote it, and then, you know, it came out in French during the pandemic, already the world was a much different place. But then we started having all these floods and these forest fires, and it became sort of routines. I think that we are going into a time where we're going to see a lot more of these issues. And so I wasn't interested in like a dystopian world where like, you know, everything was dreadful and violent. And I was interested in realistically, what is this going to look like? What are cities going to look like once, you know, they're constantly affected by fires and floods and, and extreme heat waves and storms? And how do people actually behave when, when this happened? And the reason why Detroit and the Detroit area was so interesting to me is because I feel like it's already learned how to cope with a certain form of at least economic disaster. 
And it's already been so many areas, so many neighborhoods are basically empty. And I love the creativity with which Detroiters sort of saw opportunity in that emptiness and in the in those spaces that were created by these changes in terms of you know urban agriculture and, and creating all these arts center and, and and turning an entire neighborhood into an artistic place so that's why I think it felt like this should be the bedrock of of a story about the way our cities are going to be changing and evolving This novel, The Future, was chosen for this year's Canada Reads. Mm -hmm. For people who live on our side of the Detroit River, Canada Reads is a yearly CBC project. It's one part competition reality show and one part national book club. Yes. This, this This handful of books get chosen at the beginning. And then advocates, writer advocates who are not the authors of the book, defend them on five CBC programs. This is both on TV and on the radio. And there's this panel that votes the books off one by one until we're left with a winner that becomes something that a lot of people end up reading. Okay, first of all, what went through your mind when you heard that the future had been chosen for this? I mean, it's a well-known fact for Canadian writers that this is kind of a a life-changing thing because, and especially for a Francophone writer whose books are available in translation, it's it's always a little harder to get your books out there. I think I've noticed that English readers are a little more suspicious of translations that people can be in other cultures and other, other communities. And so for me, I felt like suddenly and very drastically, my readership was about to change and get a lot larger. You know, there's no prize. There's no, nobody gets a trophy at the end of this thing. The winner doesn't get a medal. But what you do get, even if you don't win, even if you're a finalist, is a lot more exposure and a lot more contact with a lot more readers. And so that made me, obviously, nobody can be unhappy about that. I was so happy and excited and felt like, This is an opportunity to speak to a lot of people. Catherine LaRue, thank you so much for talking to us. And thanks for the book. It's a very, very good read. Thank you so much for having me. That's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. You ready for more stories about what's happening in Michigan politically and in the culture? Find Stateside at michiganpublic.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kavansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Pod music comes from Audio Network and from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.